0: As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month Beer52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different Beer52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope you're keeping well. It feels like ages since the last episode, even though it's only been about nine days. Obviously I'm trying to do these when I can, so that means some weeks I'm doing one, other weeks two or three. So then when it's only one a week, oh my word, it was—it felt like going back to school after the six weeks holidays. It felt like I hadn't done it for ages. Um, and what an episode this is. I've had today's guest on the show before and... You know, there are certain guests that you remember real details about. And it was one of the live shows that I had David Lammy on before. He is one of the most energetic guests I've ever had on. He's just full of beans. And you always leave feeling better and feeling more optimistic and just feeling happier about the world. And every guest has a different effect. But all of them it's and i've talked about this before it's just such an invigorating experience having a really good political conversation with someone particularly someone who's in you know the positions that a lot of my guests are in with the experience that a lot of them have but david lammy specifically always cheers me up not that i necessarily need cheering up but you know given the news of the last few weeks i think all of us need a bit of a lift and my word Will you get it from this uh, conversation? Um, I'd booked David to come on the show weeks ago because I was reading his book, Tribes, which is superb. And I will put a link um, where you can buy it into the um, into the show notes. So if you click on however you consume this podcast, within the notes of it, there will be a link uh, to buy his book. Um, and it's brilliant. It talks about his history, about his identity and about some of the solutions uh, to the divided society um, that we find ourselves in. There's some remarkable stories in there and we talk about so much stuff. We also explore Englishness as opposed to Britishness and the distinctions within those things and which he identifies with more and also Labour's relationship with those things. Um, and just a load more stuff in between. And of course we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. So we talk about a whole load of things. But he is just so charismatic uh, so energetic. And just, I left just feeling so much better. In, in, a, in a, You know, the last few weeks have been so emotional and and so distressing. And I can't imagine... No, and I'm saying that as a white guy. I can't imagine how it feels for others. But this just, oh my word. Um, And it's so good to have him in a senior position on the front bench. In fact, that's what we we start off by talking. Um, It's my first question to him that now that he's Shadow Justice Secretary and Shadow Lord Chancellor, um, how good it must feel after so many years to finally be valued by a Labour leader.
1: Well, look. I, the first thing is actually, as you said, that Shadow Lord Chancellor. <laughs> okay. I, I, you know, it's it's a bit bizarre. It makes me think of being back at school and sort of people like Cardinal Wolsey and you know, fancy tights and
0: stuff. Is that what attracted that, you to it? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Was that a condition
1: of the job? Oh, uh, oh dear, I've got people listening now, <laughs> wincing at the image. Uh, but, but you'll understand, it's just not, not quite how I imagined myself in this sort of august, ancient role. Um, look, I guess... I, uh, it, it was strange standing at the dispatch box Right. I haven't stood at the dispatch box in the House of Commons for a decade, a long time. That's
0: incredible. You know,
1: I, you, you know my usual spot right at the back. Uh, and I looked up at my spot and I had this pang of, oh, you know, that's oh, my seat, what am I doing here? But, but the view is nicer at the front. <laughs> um, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the speaker, was very, very sweet uh, and welcomed me to the spot. And actually, it's been great. And the reason it's been great is a couple of things. One, um, it's actually fantastic to be part of the leadership team of the Labour Party. Um, and actually, Keir is proving to be a fantastic boss. Uh, this is not just to do with the, um, the way he's running the Labour Party, but he rings you up, he sends you texts, he wants your view Uh and he's one of those bosses where you you sort of, you know, uh, you know, I'm having a phone call with him at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and I'm thinking, you know, wow, you know, you know, I'm on GMTV and he says, I saw you on GMTV, and (laughs) appears (laughs) more. Does this guy sleep? You know, he knows what I'm up to. Um, so you know. It, 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 it's, it's great and it's a fresh start and it's an important period, massively important period. Um, so much going on. I mean, just relentless. And, and, and I feel like the Labour Party is right in the thick of it and we're, you know, we're in with a shot after a period where we felt you know, very far at the back
0: of the queue. It's just remarkable and it's been so frustrating and you're one of so many talents that have effectively been ob- overlooked for the best part of a decade. It's been so frustrating when, you know, I've had my frustrations with the Labour Party and with other mainstream parties as well. And one of the main frustrations has been a lack of promoting really high quality talent. And it feels like under Keir Starmer, some of those talents that had been perhaps overlooked or not properly used are, are getting some of the recognition they deserved. And, and, and you're definitely at the top of that list. I mean, do you think, the two of you connect, not just politically, but you've both got a legal background. I mean, does that, does that help the relationship, do you think?
1: It, it does. You know, like, for example, I asked Keir uh, three years ago, or four years ago, when I was asked by David Cameron to do my review on the criminal justice system and the problems of disproportionality in the criminal justice system, I remember ringing up Keir and saying, Kier, will you be on my advisory board? I need help. And I met with him several times, and he really gave me a great steer. Um, now you know, so we go back a few years, which is really nice. And of course, he's able to ring me up this week and say, "Look, what they've done about the criminal justice view? Am I right? Has he not done this? Has he not done that?" And uh, so that that's that's really effective. Of course, we're both we're both lawyers, so we could you know he, he certainly has a sense of the issues in 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 my brief. I, I was. Really pleased to, to be vice chair of his campaign. I mean, he's new to the political world, but as you know, Matt, that can be a massive asset in politics because you don't have the baggage. <laughs> I've been here 20 years, I've got a lot of baggage. Uh, he hasn't quite got the baggage. You know, there's something fresh and there's something possible, isn't there? Um, and, and actually, if you think about, you know, Tony Blair in, in 1994, he'd been I in politics do. a while. <laughs> I know you do that, pining <laughs> for him. Uh, but again, he didn't have the baggage. You think about Barack Obama. You think about young John F. Kennedy. There are these individuals that sort of arrive. And, I mean, even actually Margaret Thatcher, it, you know, they can arrive on the scene and, and do something because they're not quite beholden to others in the way that, that those of us, those old lags that have been around <laughs> for ages are.
0: Well, you say that, I wonder actually whether you're a good example of this because by not being in the shadow cabinet and as frustration, frustrating as that's been for people like me to, to see, and I'm sure it's been more frustrating for you um, to, to be you know, in parliament and not have your talent effectively recognised by, by previous Labour leaders, actually in a way that's kept you out of the front line of what effectively has been the mess of the Labour Party and you've had a bit of a freedom actually to to do your own thing to to be prominent on on the issues you want to be prominent and and write books and do things like that perhaps had you been in the shadow cabinet you might not have been able to do those things well there's two aspects to
1: that Matt The, the first is it depends on the nature of the parliament. I actually took an active decision to leave the front bench mm. when Ed Miliband became leader. Um, I I felt personally I needed renewal. Um, I wanted to write my first book out of the ashes. I, I wasn't convinced. I've known Ed for many many years. Um, uh, I, I certainly know Ed Scott a great intellect, but I wasn't convinced that the British people would be persuaded to follow him, and I was right in that judgment. Um, And I also took the view, I just had an instinct and a feeling that my constituency needed me and needed me full time. It turned out to be right, because we then had the riots of 2011, which shot went up in flames, and uh, the problems with Mark Duggan, and in a way, that was probably the first moment now a decade ago when I really sort of stepped onto a national stage um, and people beyond, you know, just the Westminster village really came to know David Lammy and what I was about. Um, then this next period under Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, actually the truth of that last parliament is that the action was on the back benches. It just was um, the majority Uh, that the Tories had was slim. Um, You know, backbenchers had a lot of power. Uh, You could make stuff happen. And I had loads of colleagues who were frontbenchers. They were frustrated. They didn't think they were getting things done. Meanwhile, I was um, one of the leaders of the second referendum campaign, Uh, a leader on the Windrush scandal, a leader on Grenfell. Uh, I actually felt extremely powerful in the last parliament, uh, not in my own right, but brokering with other colleagues and friendships started to be forged with people like Caroline Lucas, people like Anna Soubry, um, uh, backbenchers in my own party trying to do something about Brexit, Stephen Doughty, uh, lots of MPs, some of whom won't be as familiar um, to those listening. So, So actually, in a way, It's about the parliament you get. This time round, and this is the harder side of actually being on the front bench with Keir, um, one's just really, really conscious of the whopping majority that they have. Mm. And so we can make a fuss, we can intervene, we can scrutinise, but we can't easily change the course that they are on, you, you actually do need popular opinion on your side and in a sense what we're seeing with the popular reaction to Dominic Cummings, what we're seeing with the popular reaction to Black Lives Matter is precisely the, the, the sort of allies that an opposition needs when the majority is as slim, as, as, as low as the one, you know, well as big, sorry, as the one the Conservatives have.
0: The People's Vote movement and all those other things you describe were happening at a time when there was a, a crisis, really, on the Liberal Left, effectively caused by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And some Labour MPs decided they'd had enough, and they formed the Independent Group. And then people, like Anna Soubry, got involved, and then they became Lib Dems. Were you ever tempted to leave Labour at that point? There was
1: an interview I gave with the New European. Um, it was it was it was early after. The losing the first referendum. And if you remember, the Labour Party then went into internecine warfare. (laughs) Uh, And there was a sort of attempt to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, And I just, I couldn't, I found myself not, you know, I didn't want to get involved in it. I wasn't terribly animated by it. I didn't think it would work. Um, And I, I also was actually seriously animated by the referendum, and by Nigel Farage, and by Jacob Rees-Mogg, and by the emerging ERG, and by rising xenophobia. And that was really where I stepped into this vacuum. You know, you, you, Matt, look back. There were six months and the Labour Party seemed to say nothing about, right. about, about the referendum. And, and, you know, people like Chukaramuna at that stage were saying, "Well, you know, the people have, <laughs> have voted, and you know, everyone was twiddling their thumbs because the the, um, the 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 sort of R- R- Remain in Europe campaign had gone so gone so badly. And a lot of people felt bruised, and I sort of stepped into this breach, and and I so I you know, you know, I look back and there was a sort of journey, and then and then we then you know course that that, that attempt to get rid of Jeremy lost as I thought it would Um, uh, and then we had to sort of lick our wounds and people looked up again and then there was a slightly more uh, there was a bigger a bigger moment into which people thought look we've got to take these Tories on Uh, and I was joined by some others but as I say it was an exciting time unusual friendships were forged um, there was a lot of marching a lot of campaigning we weren't we didn't win in the end and I think that's down to some egos actually on the Remain side that, that just fluffed it you know people not working together but, but, um, but we are
0: where we are. We are indeed um, and, and your book has recently come out your second book Tribes which is a brilliant read I mean right at the start of it it starts with you taking a Effectively, one of those DNA swab tests and posting it off and then getting the results, and the results are are quite uh, remarkable: twenty five percent Niger, twenty five percent Sierra Leone, twenty five percent South African, and then five percent Celtic Scottish. Uh, which of those? <laughs> i most which of Scottish.
1: Which is the most surprising? And, and anyone, anyone listening, who mm. wants to start, send me. A, Kilt. <laughs> I'll wear it the next time I'm on uh, the show. Uh, no, I mean, look. So anyone listening, if you haven't done a DNA test, it's well worth doing because yeah. it, it can throw up some some big surprises, including that your father's not your father. But that's. <laughs> Was that what oh, you thought? Was- <laughs> no, I didn't find that out. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I've had that bit in the book. <laughs> I've had people email in and say, oh my God, yeah, I got the results and <laughs> my mum was lying. <laughs> no, but but, you know, you learn about yourself. And obviously, more seriously, if you are the descendant of enslaved people, My parents from the Caribbean, they're from Guyana, which is actually in South America, at the top of South America next to Brazil and Venezuela, but very much part of the Caribbean. The bottom line is my ancestors uh, were brought from Africa sometime during the transatlantic slave trade, I know not when. Um, And there's 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 this knowing that your ancestors lost their culture they lost their language, obviously they lost their freedom, uh, and they had to build again. And I sort of write about, I go back to my parents' village and I I write about them building up the village after the end of slavery. But the bottom line is you actually do not know from where you descend. Uh, And you know probably you're quite mixed up. Uh, because obviously different Africans were bought from different, different parts of Africa and all brought together in both America and, and, and the Caribbean. And um, so I took this DNA test and I took it because um, it was, I actually took it way back in 2007-8 in and, and some of your listeners, uh, well the younger ones might not know this but the older ones will remember, that um, I was Culture Minister, Tony Blair, um had um you know got in touch I, before culture i think i was in health or, or justice and he rung me up and he said justice it was and he rung me up and he said hi david it's tony uh, david, <laughs> <laughs> i'd really like you to be culture uh, minister uh, and work with tessa jow
0: <laughs> bad accent i think um uh, and um, well, look, david i <laughs> what i want you to do frankly He's not just worked with Tessa in terms of culture, but it's about giving people a labour view, frankly, of the arts and of culture and its relevance now, not only to our history, but indeed to a modern society. Was it something like that?
1: It was exactly like that. It's all coming back to me. It's all coming back to me. <laughs> you whisper in my ear later like that. So... Um... <laughs> And basically, he said, um, there's a big job to do with the commemoration of the bicentenary of the end of the slave trade. Uh, um, And we've got to get the country ready. You know, this is an important moment, you know. And actually, it's only now, Matt, when you look at the campaign to bring down these statues, when you look at the questioning finally of systemic racism and discrimination in the country but you realize that those events were the precursor attacks Uh, I wish we could have gone further but actually you're building up to something because actually as minister I remember thinking there were a couple of cities that took this really seriously London took it seriously Liverpool took it seriously a lot of slave trade in Liverpool Hull which was obviously the city of William Wilberforce, took it incredibly serious. The city that struggled at the time was Bristol. I didn't know the city that well at that point. I know it much better today. But basically, there's a historic black community uh, uh, in Bristol, in the St Paul's area. Um, there's quite a lot of um, uh, sort of mixed race, historically mixed race uh, uh, community, or Jew heritage community, uh, in the city and then there's this old patrician side of the of the city very very english um, well to do uh, the folk that that were sort of holding up Colston, uh, this slaver who murdered um well over nineteen thousand africans throw them on the board the ones who didn't make it across to the atlantic and and there was angst in the city and they never really got to grips with it so anyway it's it's it, I, I'm not surprised, in a sense, that what has just happened has happened because I did get a, get a wind of it. But we did we did commemorate. You'll remember the Bicentenary, big ceremony in Westminster Abbey. Um, Tony Blair uh, expressed uh, regret, apologised, and uh, and it, it, it was a moment where people were able to take stock, and it you know it ricochets up to today.
0: At that point, was there any discussion, even just in passing, of people saying, you know, maybe we should start looking at things like statues of, of slave traders and maybe have a discussion about taking them down? Or was that just not on the radar at all at that point?
1: It, it, it was on the radar, but people, black communities did not feel sufficiently empowered. Um, you only just got the statement of regret from Tony. Um I managed to get slavery into the curriculum. Um, you know, I argued quite strongly with the, with the um, Department for Education and, and I got it into the curriculum. Uh, the Coalition came in, of course, um, a few years later and took it out. Um, so it wasn't in there for very long. Um, and, and even when it is discussed in schools, it's discussed through a very, very narrow lens of basically William Wilberforce. You don't hear about the um, empowered uh, slaves leading revolts in uh, the Caribbean against the slave trade. You don't hear sufficiently about freed slaves living in London, the black community in London at the time. Um, And and you certainly don't hear enough about how Britain built its wealth. you hear all this sort of glorious stuff about empire, but you don't really get to the nuts and bolts of you know, I was talking to a colleague, uh, an MP up in Oldham, and he said recently there had been a really rich discussion in Oldham about the cotton mills up there and about the fact that those cotton mills were... Uh, weaving cotton that had come from slaves in America and they made the connection with America and they wanted to retell that story at the local museum. Uh, they wanted to explain how the mill owners made their money um, and they wanted to explain how people begun to, to working class folk, begun to question this because they knew that this was bad, that these, that these people were enslaved. So it's those those complex stories that allow everyone to be part of something, and also Britain to hold its head up high and get to that moment. Anyway, I've gone way off track in terms of t- talking about my book <laughs> and the original DNA test, but that's a long way to say that going to um, Niger to spend time with the tribe that my, this is my maternal line, my maternal mother, grandmother, all the way back was from, the Tuaregs. These are nomadic people. They are um, Muslim people. They, they're called the blue people. They wear amazing kind of turbans and, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type stuff. And I, I got, they dressed me up. There I was in the desert, praying with them, um, kneeling on their... their mats in the desert eating with them breaking bread with them and they took me in and and they and also slavery still exists in that country and they helped me understand the route by which um, you know women are taken from places like Niger and Mali and they're sold to this day into slavery in, in 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 Sierra Leone and other places and I just thought wow you know what a story and Um, and you know I said to them at the end they had a ceremony for me and I said when I stand up in the House of Commons you know I stand up taller than I did before because I now know something but I also say in the book you know in the end um, I'm not Nigerian (laughs) I'm English (laughs) because I spent a long time growing up in Tottenham and Peterborough and I also talk about that in the book I go back to Peterborough it's a city I know and I love um I love the posh football team uh, and I go out and I spend time with folk who love me and care about me these these are um friends parents you know who I grew up with took me into their home you know Sunday lunch and all the rest of it and um and I and they're Brexiteers uh, uh and they they've got you know fears and concerns about immigration they're not starting at the same political point as me and i i try to write it in a way matt i don't know if i pull it off but i think i do where i'm not judging because i think there's a lot of judging during the uh, people's vote campaign i'm sort of alongside people uh talking about the division really that exists in society at the moment
0: i, I don't think you just pull it off i, I think you are um hugely generous to, to people you disagree with and not just people you disagree with but people who've been really abusive and nasty to you you're very understanding uh, of, of, of perhaps their life and where they're coming from, um, it, you know. Including the bloke who sends you that awful hate mail, um, you seem to kind of, we're well, obviously you're not excusing him, but you you have a, seem to have a high level of empathy for him. Well,
1: there's a so the beginning of the book is my journey. It's Peterborough, it's Tottenham, it's the Caribbean, it's it's Niger. And then the middle of the book, I get into the sort of sticky issues. Um, and in the chapter you're referring to, the issue is loneliness. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking of Jo Cox in so many ways. She was a champion of, of, of us thinking of loneliness. And I, had, I spent a lot of time with, with Brendan Cox, actually. But I also was thinking about the hate that killed her. Mm. Uh, and I get these death threats, I get these horrendous racist um, emails, letters, uh, tweets, social media posts. Uh, often we have to engage the police. Uh, and, I, and, and in one case, the case I describe, you know, I go up to Wolverhampton where this uh, uh, individual that's not just abused me, actually abused five other MPs as well, um, is on trial. Um, and you know I, I wanted to look him in the eyes, and you know, what I see is a pathetic figure who's lonely and depressed and has turned in on himself. And we're sitting in this court in Wolverhampton. I'm there, um, and you know the prosecutor is Asian, his lawyer is Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of irony in this room, yeah. um, it, uh, uh, and um, and I, you know, I, I write about his loneliness. I connect it to what's going on, how people are disappearing into these terrible silos into which they can be seduced by extremism. And also in that chapter, I talk about when I was lonely. I was lonely at a time in my life when I actually I should have been on on a, on a high. You know, I'd gone to Harvard. Uh, best university in the world i i was i was a young lawyer in california l a law you know look, <laughs> office looking over the pacific wow. um, I, was a, I was earning a lot of money uh, 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 you know at a very young age and I was really lonely and I was depressed and I was missing home a lot california's miles and miles away from london you know just yeah. miles away um and actually i ended up on antidepressants and i write about that period you know in my life and i also write about another uh young man in the book uh, who i come across through his uncle who is young he's muslim he's growing up um uh, in birmingham and he ends up joining isis and is, you know Dev- devastating his, his family and his parents. And again, it's this, it's this theme of loneliness. So uh, social media, the silos. And that, that, I hope that chapter feels very, it's a modern take on what's going on uh, in so many ways. And then the next chapter is about identity politics, and, which is a sort of big issue of our times, and the criticism that people like me get for raising issues of race. Um, for standing up for minorities, uh, the way in which uh, people like Farage, Boris, and others have marshaled white working class communities, not in their entirety, but in part, to say, what about my identity? The way in which we have these debates about trans rights. Um, and I suppose in that chapter, what I say is look, the big story of the 20th century is all these folk at the beginning of the century, um, gay, women, ethnic minorities, not able to self-actualize, to be who they want to be at the beginning of that century. It's because of the Labour Party that working men were able to sort of, hang on a minute, let's have a few rights and challenge their bosses. Um, People like Harvey Milk leading um, gay men and women through pride. To by the end of the 20th century, having some rights, and of course, people like Martin Luther King and, and others, uh, Gandhi, uh, Black and Brown people, and actually, what's strange is here we are at the 20 beginning of the 21st century, and there's a bunch of men like Nigel Farage and Donald Trump saying, "Hang on a minute, you're playing identity politics when, for the most of the 20th, <laughs> most of modern history." The there was only one identity that mattered and it was yours! Surprise, surprise, you know! <laughs> um, uh, but, and there is a but here, it can't just be about my identity uh trouncing someone else, it's somehow we've got to come back together again. Somehow it's about common purpose and that's what really the main thrust of the book is about, overcoming tribes. And I suppose, you know, in a sense like why I went back to cities like Peterborough because I would not be an MP were it not for Peterborough. I would not be an MP were it not for feeling um, English and caring about my country. And the fact that I missed Ribena and Walker's Crisps and and Spurs and and rugby when I was all the way in wonderful, hot, uh, but slightly weird California. Um, and, And that makes me very English. And I demand the right to be English, uh, and to be in kind of communion with my fellow English, and um, and I think it's you know and, and you know in the Labour Party definitely we've just got to be really really conscious of that common endeavour as much as we fight for for rights uh, where they still have to be fought for. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: One of the key failures, I think, not just of the Labour Party, but but of mainstream society, has been to win the argument and make the case that two white working-class people, that other victims of an unfair system are your allies and not your opponents. Because what you really see, and I see this in so many of the people I grew up with, when people talk about racial issues or gender or sexuality or any sort of identity issue, they'll say, well, my life was hard and no one's going help. (laughs) And that is true, right? But then then you should see these people as your allies. So why have we failed to to, to marry all those things together? And rather than make people go, well, I've struggled like them. So I'm on their side rather than saying, well, we're in competition effectively for a limited amount of fairness that can only be handed out at any one point.
1: Well I guess we fail because historically of course if if you like, if if race is the original sin of America, then class <laughs> is the original sin <laughs> of uh Britain <laughs> and the UK, right? And you know, It's even a big deal to have a prime minister, for example, that's got a northern accent. You know. um, uh, And so, and there's something about the way that class structures worked in Britain um, that was quite, you know, insidious and pernicious. So you did have, with the landed aristocrat and gentry, a kind of noblesse oblige. You know, you see it on Downton Abbey. Uh, where you know he is trying to sort of take care. It's like the proto welfare state, yes. uh, but he has all the privileges. But he does grant privileges to 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 the butler and the maid and the and and and, 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 the, and the town or village that he sort of supports. Um, and I guess um, you know our two major parties represent. That struggle. But it's important to remember that the Labour Party was only in power for 22 years in the 20th century. I mean, that's a tiny amount of time. And in this 21st century, we had power for 10. So, you know, we are young in terms of the national psyche and consciousness, uh, which is why we have to tread shrewdly with our leaders, we have to kind of understand that. We, we all want to go fast, I want to go fast. And, and this is an accelerated moment. When I see Black Lives Matter, and what's happened with George Floyd, there's a moment of rapid acceleration. You know, I was on Question Time um, the other day, uh, after George Floyd, and I, I said, you know, we've got to do something about structural racism. And it can't just be for black people to keep making the case for this. And, and an eyelid. I mean, I, I don't think I could have said that on Question Time last year without pillarage, you know. So, so we're in this accelerated moment where people are having a conversation, and, and actually, also, and what's exciting is the millennials. Uh, and Generation Y really get this stuff. They're a big generation. They're the children of the boomers. They, they're, they're pissed off that we heated up the, the, the planet and given us climate change, that they've inherited massive debt and, 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 and the crash of 2008 and austerity on the back of that. Now they're going to get into a recession. And they're not putting up with the same old arguments that keep the structures at bay and aren't generous and share it. And I, I guess that, uh, and, and you know, the trick is, the trick is to obviously recognise that in, in, there are going to be working class communities which are socially conservative, where you've got to get, the language has got to right, you've got to build alliances. So let's take a, a, con- what a word that has been previously contentious, that to me isn't contentious at all, Matt, white privilege. And, and sometimes when that phrase is used, you can feel a group of folk really recoiling. Because they're thinking in Middlesbrough or Sunderland, hang on a minute, privilege? I've got, yeah, I have got privilege. I've got, you know, I'm not going to swear. <laughs> <laughs> got no like. money, no cash, you know, barely got a job. You know, my kids can't buy a house. I didn't bloody go to university, there, thinking. What privilege have I had? And the trick you've got to pull off is, listen, let me be clear. You know, I'm a Labour politician and your hardship is right at the centre of my politics. And and the language about white privilege is not to say that you haven't had life hard uh, and that class is not everything, but it's to say that race and the colour of your skin isn't one of the things that made it harder. That's, That's the simple premise. And... And so you've got to know how to have that conversation without alienating folk, really. But you've also got to remain, let's be absolutely clear, you've got to remain on the turf that is for everyone, that is about everyone, um, um, and isn't solely about your identity, whether you're black, gay, a woman, whatever it is.
0: When we talk about identity, you talk about Englishness or not, what is the distinction as you say, between Englishness and Britishness?
1: Well, I think a lot of um, folk who have either come from the Caribbean or the descendant of the Caribbean or, or, or India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, they're, they're, they're actually quite comfortable with Britishness because Britishness feels a bit more inclusive. It harks into the empire, the Commonwealth. Um, you can kind of get that. Englishness, However, is more of a challenge because it's often defined in England as being either it's a, it's something owned by formerly parties like the NF, BMP, uh, UKIP. The flag of Saint George has been sort of adopted almost by by. Um, um, you know extremism almost and you and, and and you know you see these folk on social media they flag up to their name and you're like you see the comments right um and that's a problem that, that 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 we've allowed that to happen by the way um and and also i suppose and so it's at the heart of englishness is therefore an, an ethnic identity that you can only be english if you're you know you've got norman or celtic or viking you know i mean i know of course the ridiculous you've got it's all very mixed up (laughs) But anyway i'm a Celt. uh in this sense scottish um uh but 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 no so i think but i demand to be english because and i talk about this in the book because in the end in terms of my humor in terms of the things that make me laugh and the comedy i grew up with um uh even the stuff that's really not politically correct now like Dick Emery or Benny Hill um uh, but you know Terry and, June. I love Terry and June um you know um uh you know Blue Peter um um I don't know just my my love of Spurs and yeah. you know and taking my boys on a Saturday afternoon uh you know, just all of those things are English. And, 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 I, and I have got to a stage in my life, frankly, where I'm going to claim that. I'm not embarrassed by that. Um, it's as much mine as anybody else's. And actually, that then leads to a bigger idea, which is that you can have a kind of civic nationalism. You, you know, you can countries like Canada do this really, really well where you build a, a vision of yourself that's really inclusive. It's built on things that you can all share and it, it's constantly renewed. Um, um, things like the BBC represent that, but they're old institutions. It's not, the NHS represents that. What are the newer ones that we're building? And that's a sort of political project that we've, that we, we've got to think harder about. I think the last moment where we, where we carried it off was the Olympics. Yes. Uh, where we sort of came together in this extraordinary way and it was incredibly inclusive, right from the ceremony, right through the competition and then the end. But frankly, not since then have we had that kind of moment. And it's not clear what the modern institutions of that are. And it, it, it's amazing that it is definitely contested that I can say I'm English. That is, there are going to be folk saying, no, you can't. And, they, and that's not just, that's not just uh, white folk that might say that's some white folk, but it's going to be uh, some black and brown folk and say, come on, David, get, get, come on, you know, it's weird. You're British, maybe, but you're not English, you know, and why are you saying that sort of stuff? So, and that's, I wanted to get into that in the book.
0: Englishness, though, is, I always found this, uh, and, uh, and I feel the same as you, I feel patriotic, but not a nationalist. And I'm a big football fan. So when England play in tournaments, I always fly the flag out of my window. I don't fly it any other time because I think that would be slightly strange. Um, <laughs> but it's a way of like, I wear a forest kit. I would wear an England kit. And it's, I think it's nice to kind of during a tournament, have it out. Um, but when I used to work for the party, people, like there is a weirdness on the left about Englishness, about Britishness anyway. But Englishness is seen as something that intellectually, I felt in labour circles, however enlightened on left or right of the party there was a bit of a squeamishness around English that's that's right people really don't want to go there and in not going there we've allowed the regressive people to define it and i just that's right i wonder if now is there more of a mood in the and and actually the party? And let's be
1: clear it's, it's worse than that we've lost the towns yeah no the labour vote has been pushed back to london birmingham uh, manchester uh, Bristol. We've lost all of those towns.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, many of those towns are Tory heartlands, and then many of them have become now uh, uh, Tory constituencies uh, because that's where Englishness is to be found. And you know, when I say I went to school in Peterborough, it, it includes places that some of your listeners won't have heard of, places like Sleaford.
0: I've been i to sleep I've been sleeping uh, in Lincolnshire, um, sleeping in North Eichham. Spalding. I, can, Spalding. Um, oh my um, I had um, an incredible you know, night out in Spalding uh, one. <laughs> at the Punch Bowl pub. Oh my word, Spalding. These are
1: really English places, and and somehow our parties departed these places, um, and, and I I'm not. You know, I want Labour in power, let's be absolutely clear, and, let, and I'm going to be blunt with you about this, man. I remember thinking Michael Foote would win. I was young, I was just in my early teens in 1983. Uh, seemed like such a nice man as I was looking in at politics for the first time. Uh, this was just before Tottenham went up in flames in the first riots, Broadwater Farm riots. I then remember 1987, um, Neil Kinnock and Glennis Kinnock. Oh, again, they seem like such nice people. Glennis Kinnock was a teacher. My mum would turn the telly on when they were on a chat show or something. They seemed so nice and they seemed to be reaching out and speaking to people like me. By uh, 1992, Margaret Thatcher, really sort of dominating the scene and uh, again you know and I couldn't believe it you know I could not believe that we did not win those elections for, for, my, for the first time and I remember a lot of a lot of you know some of them were socialist teachers people in the community each time they said don't know don't worry we're going to win we're going to win we're going to win and, but I also remember to put it bluntly how, when we lost, it wasn't them that suffered. Yeah. It was me and the community that I was in. We were shafted. We got no money. We got no, got no one seemed to care. After the Tottenham riots, Tottenham was sort of left to flounder on its own. You know, we got barely any support at all. And that taught me something. And then, obviously, I went off to school in but It taught me that, basically, listen, mate, this is a coalition here. This is a coalition of interests. (laughs) Um, And places like Peterborough, we've got to win. And it's a broad church. And politics is about compromise. It's not just about your point of view. And I've never, ever believed uh, that. And I write about this in the book. As much as I'm Tottenham through and through, I've never said that Tottenham, my constituency, is the bellwether of the country. It isn't um the medium has got to be found somewhere between Tottenham and Peterborough when we take both those places we're in power (laughs) you know we're in business right And, and that matters to me and i guess it's why you know in the end um i felt that i had to do what i did from the back benches and why i feel now really able to play my part fully alongside Keir Starmer, because I believe people recognise, sadly, after a long period in opposition, where, look, this is about power. Look at, what, look at what Boris Johnson's up to. We can't do anything about it. It's a nightmare. Not for me or you, Matt. It's a nightmare for poor folk across the country. We've let them down badly, badly, with all this sort of silly, uh, puerile fighting and bickering between us.
0: Do you think, I mean, over the last few years, a kind of mutual disrespect developed between the towns that you describe and the Labour Party. They seem to, these places rejected Labour and Labour didn't really seem that keen on, on talking to them. It seemed to view them with a kind of revulsion, really, in, in some circles, I, I know that's not true on the whole. Under Keir Starmer, do you think... You know, you, I, th- I think you could see how Keir Starmer could win back some of those marginal seats, the classic uh, marginals, places like Brockstow, places like Nuneaton, the places that Labour won for the first time in 1997. In places like the northeast and the so-called Red Wall areas, they, and maybe I'm wrong, they feel a little bit harder. They feel that perhaps Keir Starmer is, is an improvement from Jeremy Corbyn, but he still perhaps represents a kind of London metropolitan view of the world that in the Brexit culture war, he's still on the wrong side, that he might be able to appeal to those, um, you know, Labour-Tory switches of 97, but in the post-Brexit landscape, can he talk to those people?
1: Well, it's still early days. Uh, you know, let's just be clear in that I don't spend the whole election in Tottenham or in London. Um, uh, anyone, you know, if you look at my Twitter feed, I'm always helping colleagues um, in... In the Midlands, um, in in the Northeast, in the Northwest, in Yorkshire, I, I I like to end my campaigns in Yorkshire. I always think Yorkshire is a great barometer of what you know what the English really feel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and um, and I my sense is uh, it was absolutely clear to me that that Jeremy Corbyn was oh, going down so badly, so badly. Uh, before him, Ed Miliband had not cut through, really, in those seats. Um, um, and, you know, sadly, they felt that they were presented to many. There were electors who were angry. There were electors who were crying on the doorstep. They were presented with the with, between Jeremy and, 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 and Boris. They, they were going with Boris, but I didn't think it was a great love for Boris. Um, and actually, there are these moments in politics where suddenly the electorate can just turn, right? We talked about the Labour side, and that's well rehearsed. I'm not going to go over that. But let me just give you two other examples where the electorate looks in on something and they just lose their trust. One, sadly, was in the... uh, Just before 2009, I think it was. It, It was when Gordon Brown, people forget this, was going to call a general election. Oh, man. And everyone knew he was going to call a general election. Uh, It was all in the papers, we all believed it, and guess what, we would have won. And then he fluffed it, and he he didn't call it. But worse than that, he went on TV, and gave an interview, several, and said he, oh, and I wasn't thinking of an election, he said. And you know, the thing about Gordon, he'd had this huge respect for integrity, Huge. I mean, st- obviously, that was just a moment. He still has. I think he's seen widely as a politician with tremendous integrity. But it was one of those moments for him as a politician where he just wasn't honest about the fact that, of course, he was going to call a general need to sign that show was so bad. And of course, what happened to Labour's trust ratings and approval ratings? They went through the floor. They never recovered. Well, a couple of weeks ago. I was looking at the approval ratings before and after one event. What was it? (laughs) Dominic Cummings. (laughs) Dominic Cummings. (laughs) And there was just this moment where ordinary folk have looked in. This is even worse. They're played by the rules. They're petrified of getting corona. Granny may have died. You can't see your loved one. You can't go to a funeral. This is a big... Deal, Matt. This is not. This is this is as serious as politics gets. Yes. And then the prime minister's chief advisor has just said, you know, screw you, and do my own thing. And you know, I've gone out on my wife's birthday to test my eyesight. That's also taking the electorate for fools, right? Yeah. Can't recover from that, Um, and the approval rate. Look. Now they didn't. I didn't see. They don't tell you where that's happening in the country, but I've just got a feeling that those folk in the northeast okay. are precisely the kind of folks who looked at it at that moment and they clocked it. Yes. And you know, you know, I know them. I, you know, as I say, I feel like I know those folk. And and, and the thing is, there's no going back. <laughs> they're, they're clocked it. Yeah. And at the same time, they're clocking Keir Starmer, forensically holding Boris to account. I don't think they've made up their mind on Keir Starmer because it takes a bit longer to make up your mind, but they're looking in. I think at this stage, they like what they see. They've, there's a lot of heavy lifting for Labour Party to do. We're a long way off that that general election moment, but they've looked in. And at the moment, things are looking good. They're looking good for us
0: now' there's, there's certainly he 's not put a foot wrong really since he, since he came in. You mentioned coronavirus there, and it 's been quite nice to have a talk about, you know, to talk about politics for, for some length and, and not mention it, but it 's still out there, and obviously the, the kind of focus in the wake of george of george floyd 's murder has brought two really stark things together, which is still the, the huge racial inequality that we have in our society and around the world but also the fact that th- this virus is still out there and, and people have such mixed feelings and they feel solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and they want to show their outrage at, at George's murder, but they also worry about catching a lethal virus if they go to a busy protest. What
1: should people do? Well, look, the first thing to say to the protesters and I obviously, you know, I've talked about these issues. I've raised these issues. I've been on the media in the last few weeks. So i uh, trying to to explain why statues like Coulson are wrong. Why, you know, why has the government done nothing about my review? You know, they, into the criminal justice system, all of that stuff. But it is to say, guys, don't don't let the don't let the idiots start smashing things up and and and, and throwing rocks and flares and things at police horses and police. I mean, that is just. Talk about, you're going to, you, you lose the public so quickly. Don't do it. I, you know, I've, oh God, I, I walked down Tottenham High Road watching it burning, you know. Do you know what? If you want to make a statement about Black Lives Matter, imagine Black folk just sitting in Whitehall. Just sit down. Yes. And, and have your allies with you. Yeah, you know, All those young millennials, just, just, just sit down in the street. Shut the streets, civil disobedience, Gandhi showed us how to do you know it's got a thing, you can sit in silence. The power of that would cut through, right through. Um, So there's no need for violence is the first thing, you want to keep people with you. And then I think for folk who are sitting in some of those towns, remember in those towns populations are slightly older, a lot of the young folk have left, these are working people, and they're petrified of this corona, it, 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 it's sweeping through their care homes and killing people left, right and centre. They're desperate for the government to win, to do well uh, and petrified the government isn't. They're seeing the figures, they're used to, Great Britain being great, and they can see that Great Britain is far from great on the death figures. So I, I recognise that. But I think what we should be saying is, listen, Boris Johnson could, could stop these protests in a heartbeat. Just by doing stuff, call him to number 10, the leaders of the Black Lives Matter. Implement my criminal justice review. Um, this is a civil rights moment, does it, it? I don't think it needs more reviews, by the way, and more, more, and more, and more, and um, you know, more inquiries. It just needs action, you know, do some stuff. Look at Windrush, look at those poor folk Everyone in Britain sees those four treated like terribly, and only sixty of them have got any compensation. Yeah. It's an outrage. Do some stuff, and what, you know, and he he could bring these protests to an end just by acting, and not the rhetoric and doing nothing. And it's his responsibility to bring them to an end, not Labour's responsibility to do to bring it to an end, or the protesters' responsibility. Actually,
0: just do some shit, basically. But what should those of us who, who want to be allies of the movement, you know, going on marches is obviously a sort of proud tradition on the left and, you know, you and I have been on plenty of marches in our lives. It's the sort of march so many of us would want to be on but are scared of getting a lethal virus. I mean, I, and then you feel if you're not on the march, you're not a good enough ally. It's really... Yeah,
1: and, and we've got to be careful here because there's a lot of young people on the march who props in their heads, I'm not going to die corona you know they're thinking um, I've said look for God's sake you do it you know take the sanitizer wear gloves wear your mask socially distance I'd say to the organizers you can actually organize protests by just having people stop stand still silence it it, it can be done in a way that's hugely dignified and hugely cuts through and I think a little bit more thought um, um, should be given to that but I also say this Matt, you'll understand this. Let's just go back to the beginning of the 20th century. Let's think of, I'm going to start getting emotional as I say this to you. Let's think of those Jarrow marches, marching down from the northeast to London. Let's think of those women throwing themselves in front of horses and those suffragettes fighting for the, not just the right to vote for the dignity of being seen as a human being. Let's think of Mandela and the protests that, you, you know, you and I would have been part of against apartheid. Let, let's think of Martin Luther King. Let's think of these moments. And the truth is, in these sorts of moments, in these sorts of protests, there will always be individuals that, that, that calculate that, that pulling down a statue, that, 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 that you know, going to, going to the police station for 24 hours, whatever, your act of civil disobedience that got you arrested is worth it for the bigger cause. Uh, you know, you, you know the risk. It's worth it for the bigger cause. And um, uh, those moments, history tends to look back and praise those individuals.
0: Um, David, Lappy, oh, yeah. I mean, it was superb. <laughs> okay. Just superb. And, but we could have carried on talking for hours. Well, there you go, David Lammy. I'm still buzzing from it. I just feel so much better when I've spoken to David, um, just about life in general, what a guy, and there were so many other things, you know. and I I say this all the time, I know, but um, I do need to do another episode with him as soon as I can, because there were other things I wanted to talk about, about Labour, you know, we often talk about Labour never having had a female leader, Labour's never had a black leader, and why shouldn't it be him? He could be Labour's first black Prime Minister. He could be the country's first black Prime Minister. Who knows? I was also going to ask him about the new Spurs Stadium, um, which I um, was very lucky enough to go to before... Well, before we weren't allowed to go to football anymore. And, the, the, of course, the highlight of the new stadium is the beer glasses that fill up from the bottom. Um, but that conversation, those those topics, big and small, uh, will have to wait um, for for another day. Thank you to so many of you who have been leaving iTunes reviews. Um It just really helps other people find it. So thank you. And if you get the time, please do do that. And thank you for your emails. Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. It's just really cool to know where people listen. It doesn't have to be exotic. Uh, Kathleen Clark uh, got in touch and said she's been listening um, while running up and down the Thames. She's just finished running 100k in seven days uh, for a charity called Bloody Good Period, who are distributing period products to those in the UK who need it during the COVID-19 panic um, pandemic. Uh, uh, so, Kathleen, thank you so much for doing that. Congratulations on your... Um, on your uh, charity work. And Mark Ravinette, I hope I pronounced that correctly, says he listened to the podcast in California, he listened to it in Japan, he listened to it in Norway, but most recently he's been listening to it in Nottingham. Yes. Um, so email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Some of you have been suggesting some brilliant guests, by the way, some of whom I've approached. So it is always helpful. And particularly if you work for a politician, it really helps to know that they're interested. Um, and uh, and that they're open to coming on so uh, thank you very much i hope you're all staying well i hope um you're you know you find you're finding a way to cope with what has been on top of all the other things just such a difficult uh, and and distressing um few weeks um and we are living obviously in a, in a period of of change that has the potential um to end up being such a positive thing um and I just after speaking to David today, I mean, I just always feel better after speaking to him anyway. Um, but what a great time to have spoken to him! Um, so thank you to him for coming on. Um, I've also in the show notes you can I've put a link to his book and a link where you can donate to Black Lives Matter. Um, as always, thanks for listening to the show. Do hit subscribe. Do tell your friends about it, and I'll see you next time.
1: Ta-ra. <laughs>